0: Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Musician Leonard Cohen once remarked, The blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold, and it has overturned the order of the soul. Now, there was a time when I thought financial independence was simply having enough money to do whatever you want, whenever you want. But then 2011 rolled around. And for those of you who remember, Congress was in a huge uh, disagreement and battle over raising the debt ceiling, which is something we've kind of become accustomed to now, you know, threats of the government shutting down and, you know, politicians arguing over spending money that uh, the country doesn't have. But the unique part about this event was that one of the major bond rating agencies, Standard Poor's, actually downgraded the creditworthiness of United States debt bonds. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, why should average people like me and the clients I work with be subject to the whims and and really incompetence of people in Washington – who are clearly disconnected from the needs of their constituents. You know, why should their inability to work together and do what's best for the country cause our wealth to decrease and put insecurity in our lives? And so my concept of financial independence broadened at that point to realize that it also was the ability to minimize the impact outside variables like this had on our lifestyle. And so, for those of you who've been watching these podcasts, uh, episode two talked about the greatest risk to retirement. There was a section about income segmenting, which is positioning money in retirement so that no matter what the markets are doing, for whatever reason they're doing what they're doing, people could still maintain their lifestyle and draw income without worrying about selling investments into a loss. I also learned the value of going into retirement without having any debt, paying off houses, getting rid of credit cards, car payments, Planning so that your personal fixed costs are low so that when taxes go up or $7 a gallon gas in some places arrives, it doesn't impact your lifestyle or at least not to the extent it might. And this is even true for people who are still working. I've shared in a previous episode uh, or I think that, you know, my wife and I, um, when we were both working, we only lived off of one of our incomes just so that if something happened to one of our jobs for some reason, we'd be okay. But I think it even goes beyond the financial, direct financial decisions we make. There's other considerations. You know, I grew up in Southern California. I lived there almost most of my life. And when I was a kid, power outages were kind of like this fun anomaly. It's like, ooh, how long is the power going to be out? I mean, it just didn't happen. Today, people live with planned brownouts, with the threat of blackouts. And you know, does anybody ever think what would happen if the power was out for three days? Or let's look at what COVID taught us. I mean, everything locked down and things that we take for granted, like toilet paper and fresh eggs, you couldn't get. So there's, I think, a broader view of financial independence that kind of maybe travels over that boundary into complete self-reliance. And that's what today's guest is here for and why we're going to have a conversation with a man known as the Angry American, Chris Weatherman, um, <laughs> angry spelled with an E, by the way, A-N-G-E-R-Y. He's the author of a, a series of books called The Survivalist. There's 11 in the series, um, two of which have actually appeared on the bestseller list of USA Today. Uh, he's also co-authored five other titles. For those of you who watch the History Channel and the show alone, he appeared in season one. Chris has been involved in prepping since the 1990s and his practice revolves around a couple of different things. Teaching primitive skills as well as modern survival tactics that focus on being prepared not only with the proper equipment but really with the proper mental attitude. He speaks all over the country. He's very well known. He has a presence on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and also has a website uh, and a YouTube channel all under the Angry American pseudonym. Chris currently lives with his family in Florida on the edge of the Ocala National Forest. So it's my pleasure to welcome the angry american chris weatherman live from florida chris thanks for joining me today
2: glad to be here man thanks for having me on
1: no i i appreciate it brother so i guess the first place to start because a lot of things i want to talk about is this um i guess it would be a stereotype as to what when people hear prepping i think the the thought that comes to mind are kind of apocalyptic extremists who maybe grew up with parents who are Building, uh, you know, bunkers during the early '60s, and so <laughs> yeah. what would be helpful is if you don't mind kind of dispelling some of that and sort of explaining, you know, from your perspective as one who's immersed in the lifestyle, who preppers are, and and you know why people are drawn to this. Preppers are, are really everybody.
2: the The COVID episode has, and, and what we're still living through now, has clearly demonstrated to us that the just-in-time inventory systems and all the functions of this highly tuned society that we live in. It's tuned, but it's also fragile. And COVID has demonstrated that. So to preppers, they just want to take a little bit more responsibility. They don't want to trust the system and, and believe that they don't get stuck in what we call normalcy bias. So normalcy bias is nothing bad happened yesterday, so nothing bad is going to happen today. Well, we don't look at it like that. And you hear a lot of claims that the show um, on Nat Geo, what was that? Doomsday Preppers, you know, put really cast people in a bad light. But you'll hear a lot of talk about what people are prepping for. And... I'm prepping to live. That's what I'm prepping to do. You know, I, I prep food, medical, energy, security, communications. I mean, you name it, I prepare for it. But it's not for the end of the world, per se. What I'm prepping for is what would be the end of my world, which could be a number of things. Medical illness, job loss, which I don't have a job no more, so I guess, you know, that's kind of a good thing. But uh, Or a bad hurricane that comes through and the power's out for a month in Florida. That would be the end of the world if it's in the summertime. And that's what most people are doing. They aim high. So they're going to say, well, I'm going to kind of prepare. I'm going to look for this level. But in reality, they're all prepping for the end of their world. And and I can't tell you what that is for each individual because it's always different. You know, just like we have life insurance, we have Aflac insurance, you know, we have car insurance and homeowner's insurance. We have all these insurance. We insure so many aspects of our life, but we don't actually insure the continuity of our lives. And that's all prepping is is ensuring the continuity of our
1: lives. People generally, I think, your average person maybe doesn't even want to start thinking about this stuff. Um, because. It, and would you say that's because it just sort of opens doors that potentially lead you down a path of fears that most people don't want to think about or entertain? I mean, is that a fair way to put it?
2: There's a weight that comes with taking this responsibility. And, and if you're not careful, you can let it consume you and, and overtake your life. Um, And there's a lot of aspects of it that when you start looking into them, they get scary, you know, but you mitigate that by developing a plan and then working your plan and and trying not to get off into the weeds. It's very easy to do. Putting back a little bit of food, having energy reserves, cash reserves. I'm a big fan of cash reserves, physical on-hand cash reserves, diversifying into PMs and things like that not for bartering and all that kind of craziness that you hear a lot of people talking about. To me, I look at PMs as a storage of wealth because if we wake up one day and we hear the dollar is dead, all hail the new dollar, I'll get a hell of a lot more new dollars with PMs than I will with old dollars. So to me, I look at it as a storage of wealth, not from trading and stuff. And I don't get overboard in it either. I don't have tons of it, just a little bit. But when you wake up to this reality that one of the terms I like to tell everybody is, is you are your own first responder." And I don't care if that's a car accident, a fire at your house, crime being committed against you, or a natural disaster. No one's immediately coming to help you individually. You got to be able to take care of yourself. And a lot of preppers out there, myself included, the biggest reason I got into prepping in the beginning was I didn't want to be that guy standing in line waiting for help. Because if I can take care of myself, I'm gonna. Those are resources that I don't need from the state. You know, capital S state that could go to somebody who does need them. So just a little extra effort on my part makes me no longer you know, reliant upon that. I can take care of myself and my family. And that takes the burden off of them of trying to take care of me. And that help can go to somebody who's not ready. And I live in Florida and hurricanes are common. And life in Florida after a hurricane is rough. Fuel is in short supply. The power can be out for weeks at a time. And everything gets hard to find. So I plan ahead. You know, I've got fuel storage on my property. I keep diesel fuel and gasoline stored here in the hundreds of gallons of quantities, food, generators. Uh, I'm right now in the process of engineering a, a rather substantial solar power plant from my home that will run everything on my property and be 100% off grid. I have no reliance on the grid whatsoever because I have a feeling that we're going to be coming into a time where blackouts, brownouts of the rolling variety are going to become common, and uh, I don't want to deal with them. So I'm going to go ahead and step up, pull the trigger, and get this big solar plant built,
1: you know, that's interesting you brought that up because that was one of the things in my intro for you. I kind of mentioned, you know, it's always preparing, you know, I grew up in Southern California all my life and earthquakes, you know, that's kind of always the threat. But it's like you mentioned the COVID, it's it's a disruption to just maybe some day-to-day things that, you know, you can't even foresee. So most of the people I work with in my my firm and, and people I know, you know, live in, in cities and urban areas. And I think maybe the thing that'd be helpful is a couple thoughts. One is, once you open your mind to this, it seems like there's just always so much to do. You know, there's so many things, and and you know, my, you know, it never ends, right? Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's living, you know, in your typical, you know, neighborhood in Orange County or you know, Southern California, as an example? You know, where is a good place to start if you've never really even? thought about food storage beyond having, you know, a few cans of Campbell's in the in the pantry, what would be a good place to start where people can feel like they're doing something that makes sense and at the same time is really helpful to them rather than just thinking that it's, you know, why bother? Take
2: California as, as an example. That's what you use. So if I, if I lived in Southern California right now, my biggest concern would be water. Southern California doesn't have a water supply. And you guys know the rationing that's happening there and, and all the stuff. That, you know, they're going around and putting reducers in people's water lines who they say are using too much water. I would just be looking at starting to store water to start with. This stuff doesn't have to be expensive. So if you drink sodas and you buy two liter bottles, don't throw those things away. Rinse them out. Clean them. Fill them with water. Stick them in a closet someplace. That water will be perfectly safe to drink a year from now. You won't have to do nothing to it. Then you can um, move on to food. And Food is easy to do. A lot of people get carried away with it. They get down in the weeds when they think preppers. They think all this bulk storage and this big stuff they're doing. But the easiest way to start is what we call copy canning. So when you go to the grocery store and you're getting your groceries for the week, you just buy a few extra cans of the things you're already buying, stuff your family already eats. That way, if you come into a time of crisis, you're not trying to introduce exotic menu items to your family that they've never eaten before. That just adds stress to the situation. So... You buy the stuff you already eat, stuff you know your family likes. You pick a spot in your pantry and you put those cans on the shelf there. This is where I'm going to start my food storage. And you just keep doing that. And every time you go to the store, you buy a little extra, you know, and you just keep piling it there. And once you have, say, let's say a 30-day supply for your family. I know this food could get my family by for 30 days. Yeah, we may not be eating like we're accustomed to, but we're going to be eating foods that we are comfortable with. Once you're at that 30 day point, continue doing it, but then start rotating those out. So when you buy new cans, instead of, you know, go to the store and buying the cans for this week and my extra ones for my storage, buy your ones for your storage and pull some of those older ones out, stick them into rotation. So you buy this week's food, my storage food, stick it in rotation, pull some of that stuff out and move it in to this week's use. That way you're you're naturally rotating this stuff too. And you'll find the benefits from this is that you're preparing dinner and, oh, I, I need a can of kidney beans for the chili, you know. Oh, well, there I have. we have some on the shelf in the storage. I'll pull that out, but make a note and replace it. So it's easy to do. And it doesn't have to get extravagant or, or crazy or anything. You're looking for long-term shelf-stable foods. That's what you want. So pastas, rices, anything canned or jarred is fine. But I would avoid any of the stuff like the meals in a box, lack of a better term, you know, you Maybe like hamburger helper is an example. I would avoid stuff like that. They don't have a long shelf life because they have fats and oils in them that will go rancid. So like I said, pastas, sauces, rice, beans dry, in the dry form are all great. They last forever. And then anything canned will last well beyond any expiration date printed on it. So.
1: You've emphasized, I listened to an interview you did with Monkey Works. Maybe that was a year ago. Maybe not quite that long. And you talked about water. And I know one of the things I think you mentioned was about the Berkey, which we actually have got. And that thing's amazing. And in fact, I've advised a few clients who've asked about, you know, water purified systems. Because that I mean it's just that thing's easy and it's I mean, it's great. You know, I I just to me something like that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Water's a big deal. And so again, for people who, you know, live in these cities, I mean what do you do? Because I, it seems to me that's the one resource that you need the most that's also not going to last as long as you probably starve yourself before you could allow yourself to get dehydrated. Does that make sense? Am I right on that?
2: You know, people say that you can go three days without water. Well, that's that's in a perfect scenario. You can go three days without water. You can die without water in a day, depending on your level of exertion, the temperature, your sun exposure and a bunch of other factors, you can die in a day of dehydration.
1: Particularly if your uh, power grid goes out, you've got, you don't have any more air conditioning.
2: Exactly. You still have to maintain hygiene, you know, because because disease is the biggest vector for problems post-disaster. So you got to maintain hygiene. You got to have enough to drink, enough to cook. If you don't have water, you don't eat food. That's, you just You don't because your body needs water to digest food with. So by eating, you'll actually increase your rate of dehydration. So if you don't have water, you just kind of got to go hungry until you can find water. And the thing about water is this. If you don't have water where you are, you're going to have to leave where you are and go to the water. It's that simple, or you're going to die. I recommend people get what's called a Silcox key. They're a four-point little tool that's used to open hose bibs on the outside of commercial buildings. A lot of times they don't have the handle. They just have this little thing. You stick this key in there to turn it on because when water stops flowing. There's still water in a lot of these pipes in these buildings and you can get it out. And having something like that will let you maybe go around and fill up a jug, you know, and, uh, get water from businesses in the area. Another thing people need to remember is the hot water heater in your house can be drained and that water can be used and drank and used for bathing and whatever else. It's, it's city water. So you can use that. So you've got 30 gallons, 35 gallons worth of water in your house just sitting there that if the power goes out and everything that you could tap into to use in an emergency. Uh, you might want to filter it. It might have some rust or scale or stuff in there, but there's nothing that's going to hurt you. You brush your teeth with that same water every day anyway. And you shower it, so it's it's perfectly safe. But water's the big one for us. Um, when we do evaluations for people and or consulting, like for homesteads and things like that, one, the first question we ask is, where's the water? Because if there's no water on the property, we're like, this is a viable long-term because you, it's just that critical.
1: You've also mentioned too, and, and I, this is just makes logical sense because there's people who get this Idea, and I don't know. Maybe this borders on you know extremes, but you know this bugging out, leaving your house, and you know I know you've been pretty adamant about you know why would you leave the area that you know where your where your base is, where your supplies are. But I mean, is that ever really an option? Other than I guess as you mentioned, if you start running out of stuff, is it smart to have like a backup? You know, we have property out of state. We're down here in Utah. We have property up in Montana, and you know, but that's a nine hour drive. And, you know, I mean, to me, it just seems like that could be a problem. But I'm just wondering, you know, for people that have cabins, you know, again, in Southern California, a lot of people have vacation properties up in Big Bear and places like this. Do you rely on those? Or is that just adding a variable that you just want to kind of avoid?
2: You always need to have a plan. I mean, I have a plan here. I live in a very rural area of Florida on on 10 acres, but I have a plan for leaving here if if it comes to it. Because while I don't want to, it's not my first plan, I could be forced to do it through any number of means. And for the folks that live in densely populated urban areas, population density is not your friend. First, it defies the laws of nature, which will naturally correct themselves in time. The land has what we call a carrying capacity. By that, we mean that however much land you want to say, be it an acre or be it the entire state of California, has a carrying capacity of how many organisms of each variety it can support. Now we've artificially manipulated that to make land carry far more humans than it's capable of carrying. So in a crisis situation, especially if it's something that happens and it gets come long-term, having a plan to get out of that crowd would be highly advisable. We joke with folks when they, you know, they contact us and like, well, I live in LA and I need to, what I need to do to start prepping. And I'm, I'm, I laugh and say, hire a realtor, you know? Um, Sell it and move, but uh, <laughs> I know that's not viable for people. But get out. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in LA and I hate it over there. But having a plan to, to move is, is is important. The biggest thing though is you have to decide what is your trigger to move because you don't want to be late, but you also don't want to do this and then find out you didn't need to do it. But being late, if you're late on a bug out trigger, then you're probably not going to make it to where you're trying to go.
1: When you say that. I have visions of the first season of Walking Dead, where all the cars are jammed up on the freeway getting out of Atlanta. That's exactly um, it. That's exactly <laughs> what will happen. I, I, I wasn't going to go to extremes, but anyway. So, well, actually, you know what? I have um, my sister and brother-in-law. They used to live in Miami, and I remember them telling me these stories of, you know, trying to get out with these hurricane warnings, and you know, trying to find a hotel, and they've got cats and sitting in traffic, and you know, the whole thing. I mean, you're probably familiar with that, you know, at least have seen it. I've seen it. I've never had
2: to participate in it because I've always planned accordingly.
1: So here's one too. And again, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm all over the place, but because there's some, this is like a broad topic. And I think that's probably part of the help of what you've shared to this point is just it kind of narrows it down to at least some essentials. But I mean, you know, people, again, I'm going keep going back to people I know in Southern California have swimming pools. I mean, how beneficial is a swimming pool? I mean, I, I don't think you can drink that water or can you, or is it mainly just something you'd use to, to to use for more like hygiene and that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, you could use it for hygiene and flushing toilets and things like that. The problem with pools is the algaecides that are added to it. So chlorine's fine. You can deal with chlorine. That will off-gas naturally on its own, and the water will become inert as far as chlorine goes in short order without treatment. But the problem is the other chemicals, the algaecides and the fungicides and things like that that are in the water, those can be really bad for you. Now, in the worst case, if that was all I had, I'd drink it. I'd filter it best I could. If you got a Berkey filter, like we mentioned earlier, those are great. There's also another one on the market called a Grail, which is a small hand unit, but it has various filters that'll remove chemicals, heavy metals, and some other stuff. So having something like that on hand would be a good idea too. And I recommend everybody have a portable water filter. Everybody needs to have one because you might find yourself, like you're saying, you're trying to get out of town and you're stuck in traffic and everybody in the car is dying of thirst, but there is a pond over there. And if you just had a filter, you could go over there and filter water and drink it. Most people would be like, "Oh my god, I'd never do that." Well, it's just water, folks. Surface water is fine as long as it's properly filtered and treated. You can drink it.
1: You joked about. I've heard. I think it was again with monkey. You guys were talking about you know the seventy-two hour kit and what happens at hour seventy-three. I mean, if you're saying okay, this would be a you know at some point unless everything completely collapses. And I think that's probably a a scenario no one wants to think about. But I mean, how long should people target? If again, you're this beginning person and you want to have food and stuff. I mean, is, is the month, I mean, is that kind of what you're saying or as much as you can do? I mean, is there like a milestone, you like little goals you want to set? What's useful?
2: We tell people to start with a month, try to get a month's worth of stuff put away, food, water, medicine, like I said, hygiene and stuff, everything, think COVID lockdown, all right? If you were locked in your house and you had to stay at home for a month, you want to have the food and the things necessary to be able to do that. Once you've achieved the month, if you're comfortable and you think, I'm good, this is all you need to do, great. If you're not, all right, aim for 90 days.
1: You may have seen that episode of The Twilight Zone <laughs> where the one family's got like you know there's a nuclear threat and the one family has a has a bomb shelter and everybody else no one else did anything and then there's this threat and everybody's you know feeding each other I mean it's like the worst of humanity you know comes out right and um what's the role of your neighbors in all this I mean I guess it would be relative to your community you know certainly but I mean I'm a member of a church that's you know, used to talk a lot about emergency preparedness, you know, from the pulpit actively. And I, I haven't really heard messages like that in a while, kind of oddly enough. But, you know, where does cooperation with your, I mean, obviously there's, you know, you want to help people, but then again, I guess when you drill it down, ultimately your family's your priority, I would think. I mean, I don't know, maybe I've completely misguided on this, but you know what I'm getting at? I mean, where does that all fit? Most
2: Americans don't know their neighbors. You just don't talk to the people we live around no more. And you really should get to know your neighbors for several reasons. One, you might find that they're assets to you. They have skills or knowledge that you don't possess, that they may be thinking the same way you are too, that, hey, maybe we should do a few things and get ready. Just as important as you will learn who is a liability, who the guy that says, oh, I'd never do something like that. I'll just take it from other people when I need it. You know, well, that's a guy you want to mark down on your list of, I got to keep an eye on him. Because no man, woman, or family can be an island. You will need people because at some point you have to go to sleep. In a world where we're talking about where people are living off of preps and things like that, security is a big issue. Hungry people are desperate and it's like trying to save a drowning man. If someone is drowning and you jump in the water to try to help them, more often than not, they actually drown the rescuer because they're desperate to survive. It's not through maliciousness. It's just desperation to live and. People will do the same thing when it comes to food and water and stuff like that. Especially if they have a family, they got children and stuff like that. They're at home crying that they're hungry, and you have nothing to give them. You're going to go out and do whatever it takes to feed your family. And people say, "I would never steal" or "I would never do this." Never say never. You'll do whatever it takes to feed your family.
1: You no, know, and I appreciate the candor on that. I mean, it's kind of an awkward, you know, topic. But I mean, I kind of like asking questions <laughs> that I think people are yeah. thinking about. So let me ask you this. What was the inspiration behind your survivalist books? I honestly didn't know about them until I started doing a little digging, but it sounds like sort of an interesting way to present a lot of the ideas and things to people, and rather than like a do this, do that, more of an like a kind of a fictional story approach. So, do you mind talking about your books? I've been in the survival, and
2: I'm going to use the term survival field for over 30 years. Uh, I started out learning primitive skills, Stone Age skills. And then I have worked my way through all that stuff up to where I'm at now in, in what we call modern prepping. I wrote "Going Home" on a forum on the internet as entertainment for myself. At the time, I was working doing um, the security systems in jails and prisons all around the country. I traveled often. I spent a lot of time in hotels. I'm not one to hang out in bars and that sort of thing. So I'd sit in a hotel room at night and mess around on the internet forums. You know, learn stuff, do things, and. This one forum I was on had a fiction section, and I was reading their stories one night, and I was like, these are all kind of cool, but there's kind of missing something for me. And I said, what the hell? I'm going to write a story. And that was literally just as much thought as went into it. And I just picked EMP to make it as bad as it could be. I picked the route. So Morgan, this car- character, Morgan Carter, he's 250 miles from home when an EMP occurs in the U.S., and he's just trying to get home. And I picked that very scenario because the day I started writing it, I had done the exact trip that the character does from Thomasville, Georgia, back to Central Florida. But I'd done it in my company vehicle. You know, I didn't have to walk it like he did. So I started writing the story online. It immediately took off. It took on a life of its own. It had over 2 million views online before I finished writing it. People were telling me to publish it. And I was like, I'm no writer. Nobody's going to pay money for this garbage. I said, here, I'll write you guys another one. And I wrote the second book on the same forum. But as I was writing the second book, one of my friends posted my PayPal account. And he's like, hey, everybody, let's send him money. We'll make him do it. And people did. A lot of people sent money. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm obligated. I'm like, look, I'll get this made into a book so you guys can get your copies if you'll just shut up and leave me alone. Was not taking it serious. Never envisioned this being what it is. But I got it made into a book. I spent a lot of money to do it. I got ripped off. But it went on Amazon and the first month it was on Amazon, it made a quarter of my annual salary. And I went, huh, maybe there is something to this. So I started to take it serious. And then a couple of weeks later, Penguin Books calls and makes me an offer on the book. And I turned it down, which shocked them. They were just beside themselves, but I turned it down. And so two weeks later, they called again.
1: You rejected them to keep control of your content. Is that right?
2: I rejected them because I was making more money on Amazon than what they were offering me. Oh, okay. That was the whole reason. I mean, you know, they offered me one thing. I was like, dude, I'm, you know, I'm like, I make more than that now on Amazon. And so, but they called me two weeks later with an offer that I couldn't turn down. They had some either found religion or something. I don't know what happened to them, but they made an offer that I couldn't say no to. And I took that. And that was it. Now we were off to the races now, you know? And so now the series has 11 books in it. I'm working on number 12. It's on that screen right there right now. And we're developing it for. A streaming platform like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, something to that affair. So we're hoping to get it into film production. And I have other series that I write to, and I've also done nonfiction in this space as well. So it's uh, now this is my job. This is what I do. So
1: well, it's cool. I mean, obviously you love what you do. You're exceptional at it, and to be able to you know help people and make a living. I mean, that's that's really kind of the the, the perfect scenario. <laughs> so. Hearing
2: people say that they read these books and that it made them change aspects of their life to be more secure. I mean, I've had people that sold their house, quit their jobs, moved into the country, bought a homestead, and they're going hardcore. And they're like, man, we would have never done this if it wasn't for your books. And they're like, and our just our quality of life is so much better. You're in financial management. So I, I like to tell people that true wealth is the ability to spend your time the way you want to because that is the ultimate resource. They were born, we have a finite amount of time and we don't know how much that is. We have no idea. But you have a finite amount of it. You can't earn no more, <laughs> you know, you can't buy no more. So the ability to spend your time as you choose to me is true wealth. So I consider myself very wealthy. If I wake up in the morning and I want to go fishing, I'm going fishing. This afternoon I'll be on I have a gun range on my property, me and my wife will be training on the range this afternoon. Just cuz we can do what we she's out in her garden right now. I think she's laying in the sun, but she's out in the garden right now. So, you know, I get to work from home. I get to be with my wife all day, and we do a lot of stuff together. It's been amazing. It's it's changed my life. and, And the fact that I can help folks and answer questions, I'm an instructor, a consultant. I do a whole bunch of stuff. So that's awesome. It really is profound, the impact that the books have had on a lot of people. Never would have imagined that at all.
1: No, that's great. I actually started the intro talking about just effectively what you just said. You know, I used to think that, you know, managing money and financial independence was just simply, you know, having enough money to do what you want when you want. But really, it's what you said, and I think a component of it, which is to me why I think this preparedness is really all part of that financial independence or slash self-reliance thing, because what you're doing at the end of the day is is eliminating to the extent you can the influence of all these outside forces we have no control over government decisions taxes you know just you could go on and on with all this stuff that's you know from my opinion I don't see I'm not I'm a long-term optimistic guy but short-term I it just does not a lot to really be too positive about but what's interesting is the people I've been interviewing in this podcast it's been kind of fun because your story is sort of similar is that people are getting to a place where they're living the life they want rather than allowing sort of these outside pressures to kind of dictate where they go. You know, and it's good to hear, you know, you do something you love and you get blessed with this revenue stream and spending time with family. I mean, I don't know what else really there is to strive for. I mean, that seems to be the ultimate for most people. Because I know you shared in an interview that there was a movie, I think The Road was one that best reflected sort of where you could see the the extremes going. But I mean, what's your outlook, without putting you on the spot, but I mean, we all have thoughts and views. I mean, big picture, longer term, do you think that we come out of you know the darkness into the light, so to speak?
2: Well, eventually, yes. I think, yes, we will. But presently, I see about a decade of a very, very hard time ahead of us. But there's a lot of things that, there's a lot of factors that play into that, that any one of them could change and it would change the entire outcome. So our economic outlook right now is bleak at best. We've got a food crisis going on globally that really hasn't even started yet. We're in the beginning of the beginning of that. And so we haven't even seen it yet. There's been 95 food processing plants taken out through various fires and other weird circumstances. This year alone, 95 of them. We have the political turmoil in the country. So we're looking at mass civil unrest probably you know we have one political party in the street screaming to tear down the supreme court because they can't get their way under the foundations of this country and how it works so they want they're like that kid that used to play a game with that in the middle of it when he was losing he'd want to change the rules all the time we have a militant segment of society too who's already taken to the streets and committing acts of violence and these people aren't even hungry yet they're well fed you know, they've got clothing, they've got everything they need. They're, you know, warm and dry place to sleep at night. When people start having to choose between buying gas to drive to work and feeding their children, hungry people start revolutions, okay? That's what starts revolutions. And what you're not seeing is is all of the mass civil unrest that's taking place globally at the moment that the mainstream media yeah. just won't report. Honduras is, is like two weeks into mass protests every day over fuel prices. Holland just shut down hundreds of farms because they want to reduce their nitrogen footprint by like 30%. These are Dutch people who are always pretty quiet and mild-mannered, but they're now taken to the streets. They're shutting down the, the interstates and stuff, pulling their tractors out there and closing them down. Hungry people are dangerous people because you've got to feed yourself. You've got to feed your family. And I think as we get farther and farther into this food crisis thing, along with rising prices, it's really the perfect terrible storm. Especially when you add on top of that, the already fomenting civil unrest, it can be explosive at that point. My outlook on people is a lot different than most folks. You'll hear everybody say, well, I believe people are inherently good. My belief is this. People are inherently base animals and their reactions are predicated on the stimulus that they're put under. So the more stress that they're put under, the more base animal level they become. And it's just a mechanism of survival. And I think it's going to get much worse before it gets better. I figure by the fall, this fall, no one's going to be able to look around and say that we're not in a recession or worse. I think we're already in one, obviously, if you go by metrics alone. But by the fall, I don't think anybody's going to, be able to argue the point that we're not. It'll be obvious to everybody. One hurricane hits, we already have no problem with fuel. But a hurricane hits, gas prices in this country are going to be yeah. astronomical. Venezuela just shut down one of their biggest refineries. I think it's Sunoco Gas comes from Venezuela. Now we're going to have an impact from that because they send fuel to the U.S. and we can't get it now Well, at least almost 50% of their production capacity is offline.
1: Yeah. Let's end on a rising note of hope, all right? Sure. (laughs) And maybe it's simply this. Obviously, you have skills that are pretty unique and extensive, I would say. In our household, we've done some things to just... Cut out debt, cut out a lot of those financial things that could be a hamper. But we built up food storage. In fact, one of my guests who's a financial guy in Europe talked about buying farmland and, you know, and or putting up a greenhouse, which we did, you know. And those are things, I mean, it's one thing to sit and either pretend like you're never gonna need to be concerned with this stuff, you know, stay in a complete state of denial, or to just panic about all the things that seem overwhelming. But I think there's a level of peace that does come from at least feeling like you've taken some action. You know, you've done some things to try to protect your family and potentially, as we were talking before, you know, help people around you. And I think there is something to be said for that. I don't know. Just any final thoughts, Chris? And again, I just really appreciate you being on. You've got so much to offer.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for at least being aware. I think a lot of people walk around ignoring so much of what's happening because they just don't want to think about it and deal with it. And yet, it can become oppressive at times. You know, I track stuff constantly. That's what I do. All over the globe, I'm following what's happening. And, and for me, at times, it can become oppressive. And, and I'll be like, i got to step back and take a break for it. But it, it doesn't affect my life. I'm just aware. You know, I, I think being aware... I'd rather know that there's a car coming and have the opportunity to jump out of the way as opposed to just walking down the street with my back to it, wait for it to hit me. That gives you some comfort, you know, and and knowing that if you're taking some steps to mitigate things for your family to make any impact softer for you, that's a good thing. And this doesn't have to be an all-consuming deal. There's balance and everything, right? You have to still live life, all right? That has to happen. But we want to also try to prepare the path forward to make it as easy to live as we can, no matter the situation we find ourselves in. Now, nobody wants to live through a collapse of anything, but it happens. It happens all the time. The folks in Ukraine in February didn't think Russia was going to evade. At least that's what they're saying publicly, privately. I'm sure they knew it. In Venezuela, they didn't expect their economy to fall apart like it did. No one expects it. So just being prepared for the unexpected will give you a level of comfort. Knowing that, well, if that did happen, we're not going to be as bad off because we did this and this and this. Yeah, it's going to be horrible, but we're going to be okay, you know. That adds comfort to me, which is why I do what I do. Everything I do is predicated on to soften our impact. Yeah, we're going to hit with everybody else, but we're not going to just lawn dart into this thing. We're going to kind of slide in, is my hope, so.
1: I appreciate your time, man. You know, it was nice of you to respond so quickly um, when I reached out to you. So if people are looking to get more information about The Angry American, what's the best place to go?
2: Uh, you can hit me up any of the social media. I've got all of them, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those books. The best way to find those, if you're looking for them, is you can find them on Amazon. Just uh, look up Going Home by A-American, and uh, you'll find it right there. They're on audiobook, they're on Kindle, they're print, so they're all over the place. But social media is a good way to follow what I'm doing. We, we're, we have several Facebook pages for different things because we try to control what's happening in the pages so the pages don't get off the rails. So we keep kind of topic specific. So if you want knowledge, there's a survival and prepping page, Angry American Survival and Preparedness. Then we have one we call Around the Campfire. If you want to just go in and talk stuff, that's where that's, you can do that there. We have another one that's we call the Poacher Shack, taken from the books, which is where you can talk about the books. We don't allow talk about the books on the other pages because people are different stages of reading them, and we don't want spoilers. Well, this is where the spoilers can happen. If you go in there, you're walking in, you're taking your own risk because that's where they're allowed to talk about it. So, <laughs> but yeah, social media is—you know—I I try to maintain it and keep it moving. So,
1: God bless you, brother. I appreciate you being on with me, and uh, just thanks for joining me on Upthinking Finance today.
2: Thanks for having me, man. And if anybody has questions and you guys want to put together a list and we do this again and we sit and answer them, I'd be more than happy to.
1: Awesome.
0: Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.